John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. accessed entry 981.DE2211, certificate number 31310, the Preppy Handbook. Look, Miss Cavallari, I told you my name is Oliver. Oliver what? Barrett. Barrett like the hall? Yes. Hey, I'm having coffee with a real Harvard building. You're Barrett no, Hall. No, I'm not Barrett Hall. My great-grandfather just happened to give the thing to Harvard. So his not-so-great-grandson would be able to get in. Hey, if you're so convinced I'm a loser, why did you bulldoze me into buying you coffee? I like your body. Now, what do you think of, Ken, when you think of preppy style? I am picturing... Crocodile shirt, like an Izod shirt, a mm -hmm. Rene Lacoste shirt. Um, probably khakis, some kind of boat shoes or loafers or something. No uh -huh. socks, maybe. Uh -huh. the, funny, the funny thing is I'm actually picturing the book more than the Ralph Lauren ad because we had the book as a child and I was very puzzled by it because it was just something on my parents' shelf and it was clearly supposed to be there was clearly a bit going on, and I didn't understand any of the references, so I, I puzzled over it. Yeah, it's a puzzling book. I should introduce it by saying that in 1980, a book called The Preppy Handbook, or The Official Preppy Handbook, was published. Uh, it was official, apparently. It was official. Some kind of preppy panel of experts had certified it. Yeah, you don't want, you don't want to read, like, the bootleg preppy handbook. Don't just get some off-brand one from, uh, what's it called? What's that press we were talking about that writes books about how to be uh, a hitman? Right, the uh, Parapet Press. Yeah, you mean the Paladin Press? Yeah, no, you don't want you don't want the uh, the preppy handbook from Paladin Press because it will tell you how to to poison your your great nana, <laughs> po poison your nana in order to to inherit her money. How to use the crocodile from your shirt to kill school children? <laughs> Rip it off your shirt and throw it like a, a shuriken. I was trampled by the Ralph Lauren pony. Ask me anything. <laughs> uh, the preppy handbook came out in 1980. It was written and edited by Lisa Bernbach and co-written by Jonathan Roberts. Uh, Jonathan Roberts, you may know, as the uh, writer of The Lion King. Wait. Uh, he went on to become a He very... wrote the screenplay of the cartoon The Lion King? He did. And also he wrote the movie The Sure Thing, which is actually kind of That's a, preppy, a preppy icon. I'm trying to, I'm trying to tie uh, the prep ideals into... The Lion King. I mean, I think what I think the it, has only... a, it has a patrician family that rules their rock, kind of right. Kennebunkport style, I guess. 
I mean, I think it, I think what's preppiest about it is that he went on to become a successful writer. That's pretty preppy. <laughs> no, but he must be putting messages in the movie, right? Oh, sure. Well, that's one of the assumptions about preppy people. But but we need to make a distinction between. There are a lot of distinctions to be made here. Yeah. What are the outlines of preppy culture? Because it it was very nebulous to me. You know, reading this book where obviously I was supposed to be cracking up at at everyone named Muffy. Right. uh, I had no idea what I was looking at. But the name comes from prep schools, right? It does. And the thing about the preppy handbook, I had a similar experience to yours, although I'm a little older and I had very preppy cousins, uh, preppy cousins who were extremely preppy all the way to every definition of preppy. Like in that they had actually gone to school in Andover or just in yes. that they had the, yes, the right they were they, they had prepped uh, in prep schools. They went to Ivy League colleges. They were rich and they had horses and they were preppy. Mm. I mean, and I was gifted a copy of the preppy handbook in 1980 when it was a new book by one of my preppy cousins. They probably thought it was hilarious and also probably handy. They thought it was hilarious, although not handy. They Because the thing about preps is, like a lot of moneyed people, they both love being referred to and acknowledged, but also they don't like a lot of spotlight, right? They want to be, they loved being mocked up to a certain point because it was inside mocking. Mm. I but, guess I guess it's crucial that what they don't want is imitation, right? The last thing they want is people in uh, Topeka, Kansas, knowing how to dress like them or or thinking they can. And that was the unintended, perhaps unintended side effect of the preppy handbook. I was given a copy of it and I was 12 years old and I admired my preppy cousins because they were glamorous and rich and seemed casual and cool. Sure. And so I did not understand that it was a joke. I got that it was uh, blithe, that it was tongue in cheek, but that also seemed very preppy. The fact that they took this very casual attitude about themselves. And I honestly thought it was a style guide, which I I guess until now, I kind of thought maybe it was. And the thing is, a lot of people made that mistake. Uh, The preppy handbook came out in 1980 as a kind of, uh, it was descriptive of what had been an American culture for many decades at that point that had ebbed and flowed. Uh, That was basically what we would call Ivy League style. And Ivy League style was extremely popular in the late 50s and early 60s. You see that in exemplified by John F. Kennedy. Right. I kind of picture the Kennedys on a yacht at Hyannisport. Which was very Ivy League style. But Ivy League style of the 50s was referring back to the Ivy League style of the 1920s, where with the straw uh, boaters. It's, it's and Jay Gadsby kind of. The Gadsby era. Right. And that particular style was very referential of traditional British sporting and country style. Um, So it was reflecting and refracting on this tumbling iconography of the moneyed uh, Anglo-Saxon Protestant class. It starts at Oxbridge and kind of echoes down and bounces off tennis stars and, uh, and politicians. Right. And by the time it gets to us in the 20th century, it's, it's kind of distinctly American, right? It, it kind of pushes back against a lot of continental fashion, you know, where the most fashionable look for a wealthy person would be something from Paris or Milan. And this is kind of like, oh, no, no, no. This is just what we're going to wear after the tennis. It became very American in part because what happened was the sporting clothes. I mean, a rugby shirt, a polo shirt, mm-hmm. 
even a button-down collared shirt, the reason those collars have buttons is to keep them from flapping up in your face while you're riding your pony. Uh, they're buttoned down for a reason. And these were sport clothes. You played tennis at the time in full-length trousers. Probably a new idea that you would look kind of look good you know, that you would look dressy in a certain way in the same outfit that you would use for athletics. That, that, that probably doesn't exist. The idea, of the, the very American idea, was that you could wear those clothes to town. It was a kind of revolutionary, um, again, uh, uh, something that came out of Ivy League colleges because if you have money, you can push the boundaries a little bit. Yeah, right. Well, two things. One, you have the leisure to play sports during the day right. and, and a place to be after. And yeah, number two, really, I can dress how I want and people will follow my lead. It's It might be better if I do something a little bit eyebrow, you know, somebody's monocle falls into their soup <laughs> because I'm wearing a, a polo shirt with a blue blazer over it at the club. That, that's kind of good because it shows that I can. And there's a real distinction to be made. And this is very, the English are very conscious of it. But it's especially true in the United States, the idea of old money being superior to new money. Anybody can get wealthy in the, in the idea here. Anyone can get wealthy and buy the latest, most expensive fashions from Italian and French courtiers. But to be rich enough that you're wearing your father's or your grandfather's hand-me-down jacket and there's something rumpled and it was his it was his rugby shirt that he wore ah. at Princeton. It, it's like how humor is a hard to fake measure of intelligence, as we've said in the omnibus before. This kind of fashion is a hard to fake measure of actual prestige and wealth. It used to be very hard to fake because it was all encoded in these kind of in the rarefied air of a very few colleges and prep schools and and rich East Coast families who had connections to Europe, they would summer there and et cetera, et cetera. And it was part of the American expression of waspiness. And when we describe waspiness now, we think of it as being an acronym for white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. An, uh, an acronym I first saw in the official preppy handbook, by right. the way. I did not know that as a child until I saw wasp jokes in that book. But in fact, in the original coinage of wasp, it meant wealthy. Anglo-Saxon. Oh, is that right? Yeah, because Anglo-Saxon presupposes right. white. And also probably, uh, yeah, wasp presupposes white, you know, like sure. the, idea, the idea that anybody <laughs> non-white in your social circles in the 20s or the 40s would be crazy. There are no Italian wasps, <laughs> nor Irish wasps. Like it's a pretty specific idea. And in the 19th century and in the first half of the 20th century, uh, what we would describe as wasps, I mean, they were the culturally dominant group. They were all of government, all of academia. There were no Irish college professors either until the 1950s, presumably, right? Unless you had some Dylan Thomas character at your prep school that came in and, and taught poetry, but... No, it went without saying you would interact only with white people. Right. And so what characterized wasp culture was that it was wealthy in addition to being Anglo-Saxon and Protestant. And this was a very closed system if you were a member of one of these families, you would gain admittance to the school that your father went to and then uh, and then to the, the Ivy League College. Whether or not you were a genius or not, it wasn't a meritocracy. You didn't get into Yale because your SAT scores were high. You got into Yale because your grandfather went to Yale. And, it, and in a way, it's America's attempt to uh, 
reinvent aristocracy here. We have no class system, but apparently deep in our, the human soul, there's a yearning to have a certain moneyed class with its own hierarchies that knows what to wear and doesn't have to do all the demeaning things we do, like find a job. Right. And this is descended from the fact that uh, the United States was initially and largely colonized by people from England, uh, from different regions of England. So this preppy notion is also extremely prevalent in the American South. The preppy handbook spent most of its time talking about Northeast and East Coast preptum, but they did, you know, it did tip its hat to the South. Well, yes. I mean, there's like seersucker, like light colored suits, things right. that I associate more with um, plantation owners in an evening with Mark Twain. But but within the South and fraternity culture in the, the Southern universities, mm -hmm. uh, preppy is both the style and also the mentality and was throughout this period as well. So it's a this uh, preppy aristocratic American sense of what the upper class looks like, dresses like, and acts like is a thing that actually unites the upper classes throughout the, throughout the country. You know, we think of North versus South as an insuperable barrier, but it turns out not if you're rich enough. It's like the, uh, like those old stories, the grand illusion type stuff of how, you know, the, the French and the German officers in World War I would get along great right. with each other. Because they had all the same culture. Yeah, they just didn't want to be with the enlisted men of either side. I mean, if you think about the Bush family, they make the uh, transit between the coast of Maine and Dallas, Texas, pretty effortlessly, uh, because in both cases, they're, just, they're, they're rich first. Well, I wanted to ask about that political element, because, you know, seeing preppies through the 80s lens of... Ralph Lauren's catalogs and Alex P. Keaton, it sort of seems like a very Repu young Republican phenomenon. And yet you've already mentioned the Kennedys, mm -hmm. you know, in the, well, in the, the, Kennedys in the 50s were, and 60s that had much more to do with, with wealth and kind of a youthful exuberance than it did with ideology. So the Kennedys were, were Roman Catholics and oh, Irish. Yeah, they're so, not wasps at all. No, the Kennedys uh, represent the initial democratization of prep. Ah. Uh, because up until the post-war era, preps, uh, I, I'm sorry, Ivy League wasp culture controlled both parties. Like there was no, it's not like the Democrats were like poor working class, hard scrabble senators compared to the Vermont <laughs> up, upper class senators. Every, every American senator was a w wealthy Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Patrician type. Right. The distinctions were political, but, and this is the major critique of the second half of the 20th century, that America was ruled by this exclusive and extremely small, narrow-minded class of people, and regardless of whether, what their ideology was. And it wasn't until we started to see last names repeating that we were like, wait a yeah, second. hold on. How we're many? Not, we're not doing this. <laughs> um, so the, the, the popularization sort of of that initial sporty Ivy League look in the 20s, um, that, was, that was a lot less popular in the 30s when people were, were eating uh, tinned sardines and like sucking on grass because they didn't have any food during uh, the Depression. So actual poverty tends to put a damper on uh, the patrician yearnings of prep. It does. It, you see it in the Jazz Age and in the prosperous Reagan 80s, but less so in the... Less so when times are hard. 30s and 70s. Um, in the, during World War II, 
famously a lot of the U S government and like, for instance, the CIA recruited almost exclusively from Yale. It was just the people that were charged with forming the OSS, the Op, uh, Office of Strategic Services, our original spy group. Yeah, the forerunner of the CIA. Uh, they just were, you know, they would go to Yale and- Why send... why Yaleys? Why is Harvard uh, beneath the-, the... Well, I, I, you know, I, I'm not going to get into Ivy League uh, competition with one another so much, but- I feel like here in the Pacific Northwest, we're weirdly unqualified. Uh, I mean- it's, it's very academic for us, the difference between Dartmouth my, and Brown. My family are Yaleys. All, all of the Ivy Leaguers in my family went to Yale or Brown. Uh, I have no Princeton or Harvard family members, but I, but I hear a lot of it described as Harvard is the more serious of the two, and Yale is the more creative. They're a little bit laxer there, but also more inventive. And Harvard is much more buttoned down. And maybe Harvard exemplifies the more patrician style of prep and Yale the more good old boy or or um, uh, devil may care. It's the rakish angle of your Nantucket bucket hat or whatever. Yeah, and I imagine the reason that the... The, the angle of your sweater wrapped, wrapped around your shoulders. Exactly. Whether or not you go immediately to Wall Street or take a couple of years in France <laughs> before going to Wall Street. But I think the, the, the founders of the OSS just happened to go to Yale and that's who they trusted. And it's, it's the same reason comedy is all Harvard. Right. It's all like a... There's some patient zero at the lampoon. And that just becomes... Like That's baked the culture, into the yeah. culture, right? Have, by the way, this is a bit of a. There could be. This could not be less related to prep, but uh, do you know where a lot of CIA recruiting today is from? Uh huh. No, tell me where. Well, a lot of it from state schools, <laughs> probably. That explains a lot. Agricultural schools. <laughs> Brigham Young University. Interesting. The CIA loves Mormons. They often speak a language. Sure. Because they did a they a, did a, a two year mission overseas. Right. Uh, they are fiercely loyal to institutions like government, you know. Super patriotic. Yeah, Mormons are, because of uh, our, you know, century in the wilderness with our wives and whatnot and uh, open rebellion, you know, are, we, we have a very strong assimilationist tendency yeah. to a fault. And third, they're hard to blackmail because they don't. <laughs> They don't have they any don't vices. They don't drink. They don't <laughs> stuff their secretaries. So yeah, if if you go to the highest, you know, intel, the highest intelligence levels of any branch of the government, it's full of Mormons to the degree that when I found out my wife's dad worked for the Commerce Department, I just assumed he was assumed it was CIA intelligence. And in for, fact, he may still be for years. If if so, he's very deep cover. He's been like retired for a decade. I now believe that if he was a spy, it was probably for the other side because <laughs> he has not come clean <laughs> at all. But yeah, I just, all the Mormon guys I knew who were like, quote, with the embassy as a kid. Yeah, they were all CIA or military intelligence. Well, and it's interesting when you think about the way that Ivy League as a, not just a style, but as an aspiration. Yes, this is what America can be. This is what I can be if That's I right. have the right sweater. It went through a period of, of, of wide dissemination throughout the 20th century. So that when you think of Mormons, if you go walk around the campus of BYU, it is like a scene out of the 1950s. I mean, it's so preppy. Everyone is so preppy. And not even aware of it. Not aware These of it. These are people who missed... All, a lot of preppy signifiers never had the book, you know, don't know about, you know, ironic jokes about prep. Probably didn't see a lot of the touchstone movies because they were rated R. They're not sure that, I mean, they are basically wearing from head to toe flags that symbolize things 
that that those things no longer exist or these flags don't symbolize them anymore. And that's true. uh, That's true worldwide now. Oh, yeah. Japan loves prep, right? Well, and so Japan actually played a big role in the fetishizing and like uh, the graphology of prep. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout that's butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout um it was it was hugely popular again in the 1950s and early 60s in american prep schools because there was a, a return to tradition. It was a, a time of conformity in the United States. It was a time when the clean cut looks were very popular, just sort of in the kind of post-war enthusiasm. And a lot of the heroes of the time came from that world. Uh, the Kennedy administration, although they were, the Kennedy brothers were Roman Catholics, they populated their administration with the McGeorge Bundy's. The best and the brightest. That's right. And the best and the brightest. Which was code for people who knew the right clothes and went to the right schools. And and the Kennedys went to Harvard, but they were, they bought into Harvard with their father's money. Their friends were all, and, and classmates and contemporaries were all wasps. Uh, and I guess I'm wondering, you know, we call it preppy today. We, you know, we tie it specifically to the, the preparatory schools, the teenage uh, expression of this fashion. And not that, you know, we don't call it Ivy fashion like like maybe the Japanese used to. Um, and I, is that because of this time, the 50s and the 60s, when that was where the modern version of the style was kind of born? No, in the 50s and 60s, it was very much called Ivy League oh. fashion. And in fact, there's a famous and seminal book that was enormously influential in Japan called Take Ivy. Uh, the name doesn't have any real... It's like the English you see on any Japanese t-shirt. Yeah, Take Ivy. And it's and it's a reference to the jazz album Take Five by oh, Dave Brubeck. Oh, it's a Brubeck pun. But Take Ivy. And what it was was four Japanese photographers went to the campuses of all the Ivy League schools uh, between 59 and 65 and just took candid, surreptitious photographs of college guys walking around. I wonder if that started as kind of the Asian fetishization of, of the prestige of higher education and getting into the right school, and then the photographs spawned something new. This is one of these strangely reciprocating questions. I mean, uh, Japan had just had undergone an occupation by the United States uh, after the war, and there was a lot. They were exposed to a lot of American culture. America was Baseball. In- investing a lot of money in Japan at the time. And there became a kind of cultural reciprocation 
that was where the, you know, the Japanese were both absorbing and consuming American culture, but also refining it, immediately changing it and refining it to both meet their own needs and put their own spin on it. And Take Ivy created an Ivy culture in Japan. Uh, Ivy, Ivy League style fashion became really a, a movement there. And it was happening here also, but it still had all these con like from the Japanese one remove, it had all those connotations of wealth, old money, uh, privilege. But of course, in their own culture, those are connected to very different modes of thinking. Right. Um, so seeing it through the lens of like Andover, boy, it's really a poetic twist. But in the United States... And, and, and very aesthetic, you know? It's the same way I would watch right. the movie Dead Poets Society as a high schooler and be like, Look at those beautiful autumn leaves and the people rowing out on the, on the river. Boy, what a life, you know, where I'm, I'm missing a lot of the, I'm missing all the context and I'm just seeing something pretty. Yeah. And here there was still a connection to the sporting life and the young, you know, and the, and the, uh, a lot of the things that are now encoded in the style were practical first, the buttons on the collars. And uh, the fact that rugby shirts have rubber buttons so that you don't, you know, you don't get injured when you're tackling. Right. Um, and, and, you know, the, the, the deck shoes, the loafers or whatever. Right. The socklessness, the, the cuffs on the pants, and a lot of the connections to English country life. The tweed jackets, the rubber, the tall rubber boots, the waxed cotton corduroy, which were things in English culture that communicated a country life. If you had a country house, this was how you dressed. This is how the queen dressed. Right. You know? That's true to this day. The queen with her big, tall rubber boots stomping around the Scottish Highlands. And so they, they come from a practicality and then they're funneled through kind of youth at college who are, who still are connected at least at one remove to the practical element of these clothes. That's and, what they grew up seeing. Right. And what they communicate. And a lot of them are their, their parents' clothes. Yeah. And then take it and look at it through a popular culture lens or through a Japanese lens where all you are seeing is the style and whatever amount of code you're getting is second and third hand. You're just seeing it as, uh, as a look primarily. And here domestically, we would get a little more of the, we would understand a little more of the code. A lot more of it, right. You would see a, a, uh, a madras jacket and you would say, oh, sure, that is the type of jacket that my boss wears on a Saturday afternoon on his boat. It wouldn't just be seen as like, wow, that's a bold jacket. And there are tons and tons of subtle clues, right? Prep, be clothes, typically the pants don't have pleats. Mm. Uh, blazers, traditionally... You know, there are two-button blazers and three-button blazers right. in American or in men's fashion. But the prep style is what's called a three-over-two blazer, where the blazer actually has three buttons and three buttonholes. But you're only meant to think of it as a two-button blazer because the, the lapels are pressed as though it only had two buttons. So the lapel has a buttonhole on one side and a button underneath it on the other. Which cannot actually be buttoned. They're, they're not way. used. If you try to button them, it will look awkward and pinched and, and buckled because it's not tailored to be buttoned. Uh, but it is there as a superfluous kind of indicator of a, it's a very specific 
look that's meant to communicate an inside knowledge of tailoring. And it's a sporty look. It's a button that's meant to be unbuttoned. Right. Um, which is, again, a sort of classic prep It's destiny idea. is to do nothing, much yeah. like the people who wore this fashion. If you put on a polo shirt, you do not button that. You don't <laughs> button the buttons unless right. you're doing... And, and this started to reverberate back across the continent. If you think of the mod styles of the early 60s, a lot of them are American Ivy League styles, which have then been repurposed by the mods as a kind of... Oh, I never thought of that. Of a, like the, a much hipper and now middle class or even lower middle class way of expressing style. What are the data points you're looking at there? In, so in so the mod look. you're looking at um, like tapered cuffed pants, three button jackets with narrow lapels and yeah. small ties, like crew cut haircuts. I mean, a lot of what you... When when we look at Pete Townsend in 1962, you're not thinking, you're not making a connection to John F. Kennedy, except by thinking, oh, well, that was just the style of the day. But the style was Ivy League. And so it had kind of gone full circle. It must have been a big deal overseas to suddenly have the leader of the free world be some young, vibrant guy. Young, Is, cool guy in a skinny tie. Can you imagine for the first, like, and just to know that's the first time ever like it must have, it must have felt like some, and we can see echoes of it in our time by remembering what Obama felt like in 2008, but it really must felt like, yeah, this is our time. It's not just a succession of identical balding men. Right. And the fact that he was Catholic was revolutionary, I think, and made it feel like there was a, a, a new world of possibility. We've talked and, about how he didn't wear a hat, which is just immediately contrasting with your parents' generation. You know, suddenly this is a guy who does not do what your dad does. But he's the president. Right. Wow. Well, so at the end of the 60s, that style started to seem unhip, right? It was, if you think about the Beach Boys in 1964, they're all just as preppy as you could be. And they're Southern California, but that style had... It's true, man. The towels around the, around the shoulders. Yeah, and the little, the, the, the plaid uh, madras shorts and the crew cut haircuts. Yeah. But by the late 60s, lapels had gotten wider. Uh, polyester fabrics were introduced and seen as a kind of revolutionary way of keeping a crease or of of being able to have exotic bold prints. And the then the opposite of the kind of the homespun family heirloom textiles of of prep. Completely opposite. I mean, prep is all about uh, natural fabrics and a kind of you know American-made ethos. And so prep fell out of fashion and became very unhip for a period. And also a, a big part of hippie style was denim, long hair, working clothes, working man's clothes. But in about 1968, a young guy by the name of Ralph Lauren opened a boutique in, within Bloomingdale's selling ties. His first foray into fashion really? was ties. making ties. And his ties were all pretty preppy based on regimental ties. So when you think of a striped tie, your typical tie with big, bold stripes, mm -hmm. that's a British, uh, we bit that rhyme from the British. And those ties were used to indicate what military regiment you were in and what college you were in. Those, those colors and, and size of stripes 
were very coded. They communicated to people exactly who you were and where you were from. And the symbology being military could not push back more against kind of the prevailing hippie fashion of that time, right? where nothing was less fashionable than the military in any sense. And if you went to Princeton, you wore a Princeton tie. If you went to Harvard, you went, you wore a Harvard tie. And those ties, if you saw them across the room and you were members of that community, you would recognize the colors and know what they were. I mean, it was a way of saying I went to Harvard without wearing a Harvard sweatshirt. And Ralph Lauren started this kind of New York boutique and then began expanding, doing polo shirts. Yeah, I guess it never really occurred to me how close that tie to British regimental activity is until you, when you call your brand polo. Polo. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, a sport that, you know, even the wealthy people you're emulating in America have probably never played. Well, and when you think about crew, right. a crew cut, a crew neck sweater, yeah. crew is, a, is the ultimate Ivy League or uh, Oxbridge sport. I guess I always sort of subconsciously associate a crew cut with like a military crew on a ship, but no, it comes from the sport. It's crew, yeah. Um, so all of these were uh, were callbacks, but also they were being modified for a slightly broader audience. And if you think about the movies of the mid to late 70s, there's a lot of nostalgia in movies of the 70s. You, you, uh, you come up with... Like Greece Amer and American graffiti and uh, right things that are hearkening back, but American graffiti in particular, and also Animal House, both celebrate that early '60s Americana. If you can picture Richard Dreyfus in American Graffiti, he's extremely preppy. Yeah, and Animal House is, for all intents and purposes, a style guide for how to be preppy. Although the bad guys are preppy. Uh, <laughs> Right, that continued through the 80s. Yeah. Like on all those Revenge of the Nerds type movies, or even the John Hughes ones where you're really hoping that the girl does not wind up with the prep. The prep is always the baddie because the prep is the snob, the prep is the... But all these came after Love Story, which I think actually used the word preppy. Like it was very much not subtext. It was whatever's bigger than the subtext, the text. Right, and Love Story was... Like this guy actually did, you know, this is some... Um, guy who comes from East Coast money and she's not, she's the working class Radcliffe genius girl. Harvard's got five million books and Radcliffe's got a few lousy thousand. All I want is one. I've got an hour exam tomorrow, damn it. Please watch your profanity, preppy. Hey, what makes you so sure I went to prep school? You look stupid and rich. Actually, I'm smart and poor. Uh-uh, I'm smart and poor. What makes you so smart? I wouldn't go for coffee with you. Yeah, well, I wouldn't ask you. Well, that's what makes you stupid. And that's a, that's where the transition between Ivy League and Preppy starts to evolve. Um, I wonder if that movie is a lot of why we think we think of it as Preppy fashion and not we think Ivy of, fashion. Uh, I mean, I, that movie is a Preppy tentpole. And the thing about Preps and Ivy League people is that they do love self-referentiality. Right. I mean, it, when you show up to your freshman year at Harvard and you're driving a rusty 40 year old Volvo that belonged to your grandfather, you are both unconscious of it because, hey, it's just the car that I was handed down. But you're also very conscious of it because it's a signifier. And we talk now in the United States a lot about uh, white privilege. It's a big part of what we uh, it's one of our terminologies that we use to describe a kind of 
unconscious privilege. Unexamined advantage unexamined that privilege. many of us might have. But there's another kind of privilege, which, which I think of as elite privilege, which is very examined. And a lot of the stuff that we call white privilege isn't really, it's elite privilege, which is stuff that people actively seek, right? right? You want status on an airline. You want to be in the club and in the front row. And, you know, if you think about the parties that P. Diddy throws on the, out in the Hamptons, they are absolutely like orgies of Ivy League. It's Jay Gatsby. Right. Uh, but, th- but that is meant to communicate elite privilege rather than the unexamined version, which is white privilege. I almost think the, ex- the existence of that and its, its you know, prevalence and uh, eye-catching nature in our culture really makes it hard for uh, notions like white privilege to catch on because it's so easy to say, what do you mean my privilege? I'm not one of these people right. having these Gatsby-like orgies. Like, there's a whole class of people like this, and you're bugging me about how it's easier for me to get a cab? Like, leave me alone. <laughs> I went to a public university. And that's the unexamined aspect of it. Yeah. And the thing about Ivy League people, preppies, these the, the wasps, which are wealthy Anglo-Saxon Protestants, they have completely examined it. You know, they're not unconscious of it. They don't want middle-class whites in you know, they're very, very aware of their status and very aware of keeping it exclusive. Well, the book must have been the, I don't mean to jump ahead, but the book must have been the last thing they wanted. Well, it's funny because the book came out and was a smash, an unexpected smash. And it didn't just affect people like you and me who do, were... Do we have this anymore, by the way, these book fads? Because I think of that as a big part of my childhood where suddenly everyone has... Everyone has this book. 101 uses for a dead cat. Right. And later you have to defend, why did you have all these... Why did this book sell 60 million copies last year? Well, and also like, I'm okay, you're okay. <laughs> right. uh, these books that were... The joy of sex. I mean, I'm okay. You're okay. That still kind of exists as like the secret or whatever, you know, like right. a, a, like a couple of vague kind of Khalil Gibran lines are going to help people rearrange their lives. But this was a weird one. It was both a guide book and also a comedy book. And all, I mean, it was just a book that that is exactly the kind of thing that you put on the back of your toilet to read one or two pages every once in a while. It's it, must not, be, it must be, a lot of it must be mass hypnosis. Everyone else has the dead cat book. Everyone else has Sniglets. <coughs> like, well, except that in the case of this book, it was describing maybe for the first time in pretty elucidative detail, a thing that everyone in America was conscious of. But no one had written up. But, but no one had written up. Because it wasn't an era of the, the think piece did not yet exist. It wasn't a thing where you could, because people from inside wouldn't typically write about it. Right. And Lisa Bernbach and, uh, and Jonathan Roberts met at Brown and they were members of this culture, but they were, it was also a time of punk rock. It was a time of ironic pieces in the New Yorker. You really had a choice of what your, your look was. Preppy was not your only option. It was starting to become a splintered youth culture. Yeah. And there's actually a page in the Preppy handbook that talks about the punk prep connection (laughs) where in the late seventies, early eighties, you could be preppy and yet, you know, slumming in the punk club. I like the idea that prep can just overlay any look to make it better. In a way it, it, it is depending on who your daddy is, I guess. And, and as a result of the preppy handbook's popularity, preppy swept the nation. 
Lisa Bernbach, by the way, like I was later aware, became a deputy editor at Spy Magazine, yep. which was a huge touchstone for me in the 80s of a certain kind of unattainable coolness. She became a magazine writer and someone who was always, you know, kind of on the like tongue in cheek American letters land. And Spy did a ton of uh, cover packages that were like this, where they would send it, dissect some very hard to pin down, very kind of privilegy concept of the moment, you know, postmodernism or, you know, whatever the 80s fetishes were. And this is very much a prototype of that. But when it came out, I was just too young to even understand what it was trying to do. Well, and it is this Ouroboros because the people who were writing for The New Yorker were also taken from this class. I mean, Ivy League culture still dominated the New York world of finance and publishing and academia. And so this was an insider book written by insiders and what I assume they thought largely for insiders when they were writing it. I, I imagine they thought it would be like the Harvard Lampoon. Everybody would have a copy of it at college, but it wouldn't go much further than that. Kind of the way Zuckerberg invented Facebook initially just as a shitty way of judging other people at your school. Um, didn't anticipate it becoming a, I mean, Facebook is the ultimate sort of preppy thing that became a global phenomenon. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. But the Preppy Handbook had the unintended consequence of completely exploding the Preppy bubble onto the world. Ralph Lauren had already been selling preppy clothes sure, to preps, but, but... But not just to preps. Like, you know, when I was a 80s kid, like every well-dressed kid had some polo-type knit shirt. Well, but you're talking about a post-1980 exactly. America. Exactly. And in a pre-1980 America, preppy clothes... So Brooks Brothers has been selling preppy clothes from time immemorial. It was just where you went if you were a person of a certain class and culture to get your clothes made. Uh, Jay Press is another example of, a, of a, a tailor who had four offices in the world. One of them was at Yale, one of them was at Harvard, and one of them was at Princeton, and one of them was in New York City. Huh. So it, it, these were icons that invented and also inhabited the style. Ralph Lauren was a Jewish kid in New York City who was co-opting that style and then sort of selling it back. I can make these cheaply and anyone could wear these. Right. Uh, But it was still kind of a, uh, he was trying to appeal to an exclusive customer base. Preppy Handbook came out and all of a sudden the Ralph Lauren shirt became a ubiquitous item. Preppy style became ubiquitous. 
and uh, Lisa Bernbach describes going on a bo the book tours for the Preppy Handbook. She said she was on tour for two years Jeez. because everywhere she went, the book was selling out. People were lining up because in a lot of cases, people felt recognized for the first time. She said she wasn't even aware of prep culture in the South until she published this book and went down there and she'd show up at the University of Virginia and there'd be 2,000 people lined up to see her. What a great... In a uh, heartwarming story that is the enlightened, the, you know, the wealthy elites in every part of the country could finally see themselves in pop culture. But even as that was happening, other people like us, middle class kids, and then increasingly everyone saw these style items as kind of foundational, basic items. That's just default clothing in America. And I wonder, I wonder about seeing that through the racial lens. You know, imagine living in that time, you know, a good quarter of the country is not white. And suddenly the default look of America is the whitest, most patrician look you can just aggressively waspy. It's amazing because it disseminated so quickly that it was a kind of, it functioned as a kind of co-optation of the uniform of the oppressor. Like <laughs> if everyone is wearing a blue Oxford cloth button down shirt. Then nobody is. Then nobody is, right? That has no authority anymore. That's appropriation. I don't think it's, I don't think, <laughs> I don't think it's very culturally sensitive <clears throat> to wear boat shoes unless you own a boat. I remember when Kinko's was first exploding as a company nationwide, uh, they adopted as their uniform khaki pants, uh, you know, chinos, and a blue button down Oxford cloth shirt that had the word Kinko's stenciled on it. <laughs> and I remember at the time being shocked at it because that was such a specific look that had until very, very recently been worn by a very specific kind of person. And you're right. Now it's the de facto uniform of American retail. You see it everywhere. It's working man. Now that we're a, a service economy, that's a working man's outfit is yeah. khakis and then a polo in the color of Target or whoever you, or Starbucks or whoever you work for. Which was formerly exclusively an upper middle class set of clothes. Uh, the, the blue blazer with brass buttons. Yeah. A blue Oxford cloth shirt with who, the... Who do you think you are? Yeah. The, the, this is the this is a country club outfit. And now you're right. It's at every retail outlet. And the spread of this is what's responsible for companies like Land's End. Um, Land's End, which was a mail order Sears that came up immediately in the aftermath of this and popularized blue Oxford cloth shirts. Like you could buy this stuff by mail now cheaply and everyone was preppy. Um, J. Crew, the company, had formerly been just a discount mail order cheap clothes company, and they rebranded themselves in the aftermath of, and, and specifically referenced to the preppy handbook as their sort of um, style model. And J. Crew to this day is purveying this preppy style. And when you look at Tommy Hilfiger, um, Ralph Lauren, all of the major retailers, The Gap, it's all preppy. The fact that the book came out in 1980 is very difficult for me because it makes it hard for me to definitively say, ah, this is a symptom of the Reagan revolution or, ah, this is what, this is what helped bring about the conservative 1980s. So you can't really tell if it's cause or effect because they happened at literally the exact same time. Yeah, and, and, and they, the popularity, the initial popularity reflected this moment where people were ready to kick down the door of the white Protestant establishment by embracing 
a lot of the, initially, the exclusivity of it. I mean, when Ralph Lauren shirts first arrived at my high school, they were expensive. They still communicated that you were a hotshot. You were one of the rich kids. And that continues even to this day, although you can get a polo shirt for $4. What about, do you have to get the one where the horse is really big? Have you seen these where the... Uh, but that's again, that's a, that now what is that? Is that democratization of it? Or is that you got to intensify because it's everywhere. It's hearkening to sport. A lot of Ralph Lauren's, uh, fashion culture. He keeps tying it back to polo mm -hmm. as a sport or rugby as uh, sports. And that big logo is a new way of saying, if you see the advertisements, it's always on guys who are out performing feats of athleticism and big fields. What's curious is that I mean, one of the great all-time style icons of this style, I guess, is uh, the Duke of Windsor, the former King of England, Edward VIII. Ah, okay. Who, uh, the one who abdicated. The, who abdicated. And he, yeah, he lived the ultimate life of leisure because he was constitute, you know, literally governmentally not allowed to have the job he was born to have. Right. But even before he was king, when he was a young man, he was known throughout the world as an extremely stylish person, a uh, very, uh, he, he was a dandy, a foppish dresser. Mm -hmm. And he had the money and the taste to have clothes tailored to within an inch of their lives to his athletic frame. Was it a Kennedy type thing where he was actually breaking the old timey rules and was seen as kind of a, a young Turk? He was a young Turk. He, uh, he's one of the first guys to ever wear his necktie where the, the skinny end was longer than the fat end. Whoa. He I, would wear it sometimes with the skinny end tucked into the waist of his pants. He's, I still don't do that. Apparently I'm a hundred years behind Edward VIII. Well, it isn't done. He's, he was very, very, he was someone who mixed patterns, who wore big, bold ties, uh, window pane check suits. It's more like I do this because I can. I, I, I wonder if that explains the length of, of President Trump's ties. You know, more Ugh. like no one tells me how to, no one tells me what's stylish. Uh, his suits are, Trump is famous for having very expensive suits, but very thin fabrics, which he then had, thin, expensive, you know, like high grade fabrics. But because of his physical uh, stature. Blobbiness and, um, is the, I think the scientific term. And because of his taste in tailoring, these fabrics are not stiff enough to support the way that he wants his suits made. So he, his suits are really like floppy looking and, and unattractive because they don't have enough. Cause he is equating the luxurious fabric and the unstructuredness of them as a kind of luxury. Uh -huh. But in fact, for him to look good, his suits would need to be constructed more stiffly out of some sturdier fabric because he's a big man and he needs more, he needs to be contained by his clothes a little bit better. You can't get away with that Italian fabric if you're, I mean, that's not, it's, they aren't very resilient fabrics, right? They're, they're too fine. Yes. And uh, he was already probably 40 when the preppy handbook came out and not... Yeah, you know, not, not he wasn't changing his tune. He's not very preppy, but but also it's the classic mistake I think that the thing that is more expensive is naturally uh, I better. Right, and and, so, and that's why you get gold fixtures on your sink because right. it costs more. But and within fashion and truly like looking good, you have to pick the thing that's going to look good. And 
a lot of times it's the more expensive thing, but it's more expensive because people are, are building it purpose built, you know, and I, you get the sense that Trump is just like, I'll take the most expensive Italian stuff you have. And it's like, well, that's not what we make suits out of. And he's like, don't tell me what to do. But Edward VIII, although, or I'm sorry, rather the Duke of Windsor, which is the title he took after he abdicated. Yes. He broke a lot of rules, but if you look at any photograph of him dressed in his clothes, if you Google uh, Duke of Windsor style, you will see a man who looks fantastic in his clothes. He's very attractive, which helps. He's attractive, but also he is just, he is so well tailored and also he has such an individual sense of style. And we've, uh, anyone who's watching the, uh, the, the, the crown, the on, crown on Netflix, the episodic television show, the crown will know that he's also a pretty, uh, irredeemable person. He's insufferable. Yeah. He's, uh, he's, he's really bitchy about literally everyone he knows. Yeah. He, he's a Nazi. He doesn't yeah. really mind making the Nazi salute when there's Nazis around. Yeah. I guess, I guess he's a, I guess he should have had his, his, uh, his great nonconformist fashion attitudes, you know, to extend to the Nazi salute. Like, Hey, maybe I shouldn't do that just because everyone's doing it. Well, and unfortunately, you know, the, the, uh, the best tailored uh, uh, autocrats or the Nazis. They, their clothes are... I wonder if that's how he fell into it. Their clothes are made by Hugo Boss. No, I think he... Fo- I think they followed him because he was doing... He was already considered very well-dressed in the teens and 20s. But the qu- it, preppy style does suggest a question. I like how you almost said beg the question and decided, no, for the future, I'm going to do this right. That's right. Beg the question is a very specific logical fallacy. It does not beg the question. It asks the question. There it suggests go. the question. Look at you, a, a language prescriptivist. Yeah, well, we try. We could do a show on just beg the question and and uh, all the other sort of logical fallacies that are misappropriated. If we start doing shows on grammar, I think that'll be called <laughs> begging for the show to end. <laughs> begging for our audience to tune out. <laughs> uh, and this is my second fashion show. And I think there are probably going to be a lot more because this stuff really intrigues me. If you count hat etiquette and hypercolor, it oh, might be the third, the third one. in the omnibus. Am I missing one? Uh, that might be it. I, 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 this uh, intrigues me a lot because of how, what it signifies and the sure. way that you can talk about class and culture. And the historical context of why these things when it's not arbitrary. But when you look at these styles and the fact that we all now wear them worldwide, globally, the polo shirt, the button-down shirt, especially the button-down shirt. Um, Can you imagine suggesting to a young person today the idea that the button-down shirt was part of a specific fashion movement? Well, and a class indicator. Exactly. You know, that, that, that it, is a, it is symbolic of a kind of waspy privilege, the button-down shirt. But it is, and was until really recently. I mean, probably not recently to a 25-year-old, but recently, recent enough that I watched it happen. Um, Are these things, they obviously don't have any connotation anymore. They've become so dilute, you don't even see them. Although Tommy Hilfiger and Ralph Lauren and and J. Crew continue to advertise their clothes as affluent clothes, their models are always set against a backdrop of a Cape Cod house. Yes. But now their models are multicultural, all young, all 
excruciatingly diverse. It turned out Cape Cod might have had the best looking clothes in the world, but not the best looking models. No, right. <laughs> we, uh, we really had to get a broader lens. Yeah, if you if you just took uh, your models from the Princeton class of 1959, you're you're going to run out of pretty people pretty fast. We need much less inbreeding in our mail order catalogs. Well, and also those were all all male schools at the time, so there wouldn't have been any women at all. Oh, that's true. Um, but now that those are universal touchstones of style, do we still use them and use them almost exclusively. There isn't another kind of shirt. I, I challenge you to go to a department store and buy a shirt that doesn't have buttons on the collar. Is it because those things are intrinsically beautiful? Do they satisfy a kind of, uh, Leonardo's golden rule? Are they the er form of, of a shirt? Or just of think, a clothes. Just think about the millennia of cavemen progressing through different kinds of loincloths and, you know, through whatever tunics and togas, finally getting to the perfect outfit. The powder blue. Preppy fashion. Cotton shirt with buttoned collars. We did it. We invented Oxford blue. All these other colors, indigo, magenta, they can go screw themselves. And colors come and go, uh, as they always did in fashion, but still these are the eternal baseline. And in a way, post-preppy handbook, it began a process of the death of fashion. Um, you get something so good, why mess with it? It, it? it We adopted an eternal baseline American and by default world wardrobe. Uh, People still push back against it, you know, like to connote rebellion, you know, tattoos and piercings, for example, are very unpreppy mm-hmm. and now they're very widespread. Mm-hmm. And maybe that is a way of saying, fine, you can all make me wear, you know, button down shirts and blazers and khakis, but guess what? And and bold juxtaposition where you take preppy uh, mm. like base colors and then juxtapose something crazy over the top of it, like a leather jacket or a tattoo. That's or a, mashup culture when everything's been invented and the only, really your only outlet for creativity is to like mix some conservative thing with some not conservative thing. And yet prep culture, Ivy League style, uh, foreshadowed this from the very start. It was based on a kind of idea that you were going to take establishment clothes and repurpose them and wear them at inappropriate events, you're going to wear your tennis whites to downtown during the day. That was, it, it was baked in to prep style and Ivy style that the notion of inappropriateness was somehow part of its DNA. Well, I guess we'll know, like our listeners know right now, if, you know, 3000 years from now, if fashion continues to be flat and you know, our scaly skinned listeners, whatever species there are, are actually wearing gold button blazers and merino wool sweaters and whatnot. When you think about the science fiction of the 70s, where we were trying to picture what people looked like in 2050. It was often pajamas. Pajamas. We, we really or... did have that idea. And it would turn out to be true that comfort was what was coming, that people would just want the easiest, shapeless, most thing to wear. Or like mylar unitards. Right. I thought one of the most interesting examples of that was in the movie Alien. What are they wearing? 
I mean, she wears her underwear for the whole second hour, but. Well, what, now what, which one was it with Paul Reiser? Was that Aliens? Ah, that's the second one. He seems to be wearing some kind of 80s Max Headroom new wave idea of what, of what the future holds. So he's got a blazer on, but instead, but instead of the collar laying flat, it's like popped. Like the, the blazer collar is popped. Yes. Uh, and it seemed like just like a, a pretty clever attempt to predict what style would be 50 years in the future. Clearly it will be preppy, but one thing will be different. I don't think anybody in the, in the past would have ever predicted that our future astronauts racing through space, our technological billionaires and people living in completely computerized worlds who are talking to their thermostats and driving electric cars would all be dressed like a prep school kid from 1959. They're all wearing hoodies now. There were never any Bond villains with hoodies, but that's what our evil billionaires are wearing now. And that concludes The Preppy Handbook. Entry 981.DE2211, certificate number 31310, in the omnibus. Listeners, we certainly hope that even if preppy fashion exists in your time, that social media, the other... Ivy League gift to the world. Super gift. Does not. I never actually connected them until you said that. Yeah. Uh, but at the moment, you know, in our day, we were products of our time. We were, against our will, forced to be at Omnibus Project on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. John tweeted as at John Roderick. I as at Ken Jennings. John was even on Instagram. We... You can see preppy fashion on high display there because I am as prep as they come. You uh, are one of these mix and match yeah, preps, though. Right. You know, you want to ha- you want to take prep, but you want to put something on it. I take ivy, and then I give ivy. You you want you want to wear ivy, but then put epaulets on it, right? Example. Or put actual ivy uh, <laughs> in all the pockets. It's true. You often do dress as the ghost of Christmas present. I do with ivy and fruits draped all over you. It's, I'm the green man. It's a good look. Uh-huh. Uh, we had a gathering of listeners called the Futurelings on Facebook that we love to check in on. Uh, Also via email, uh, people would write to suggest further avenues of academic inquiry that the Omnibus should pursue by contacting us at omnibusproject at howstuffworks.com. Listeners, I am having a very difficult time picturing exactly how blue Oxford cloth will be used to clothe a, uh, a, a, a glowing jellyfish thing. Right, or, an, or a field of mussels, like sentient mussels, uh, who, who now breathe air and are, are living above the water. It's true. If they're a hive mind, do they wear one giant blazer? Or does each little mussel have its own little blazer, which from the air, from a mile up, spells out Harvard? Mm, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> right, or each, you know, each muscle could open and have just one letter, like H-A-R. Our listeners could be actual... Lacoste-looking crocodiles. You, you know, it's possible. That's true. It's possible they could live on Oxford cloth. They could be crocodiles that live on multicolored <laughs> Oxford cloth. We can't predict. They could be centaurs that look like the Ralph Lauren polo icon, but it's actually a horse with a human head. They could be that small, right? They could be <laughs> tiny little polo players, <laughs> tiny little monochromatic polo players, or the Ivy League colleges themselves could become sentient. And we could just be talking to Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and Brown right now. We're speaking to immaculately gardened, sentient college campuses. <laughs> the Seven Sisters are literally sisters. Yeah, they've, they've reabsorbed all of their students, and they just live in perfect harmony with one another. 
Anyway, this may be our final word. I hope not. There's so much more to talk about. But uh, if Providence allows, we'll be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. Omnibus.